you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter number 15. Luke chapter number 15, and I want to preach a message entitled The Elder Brother Syndrome. Now, this is a familiar story. It is a story. Are we needing some help on that? You found it? It's a familiar story. Um, I'll actually begin reading in Luke chapter number 15. In verse number 25, where the Bible says, Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh uh, to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead, and is alive again, and was lost, and is found. This is part of what is called the prodigal son story. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you're familiar with the story about uh, a man has two sons, and one of those sons demands that he gets the uh, inheritance, and he goes off, and he wastes that inheritance, and he finally comes to himself, realizes he's spent all, and he has nothing left. He decides to go back to his father. Now, that story is very familiar and oft-preached and oft-told in our circles. But I wonder if you've ever heard this version of it. It's about 80 years ago that there was a pastor that was very clever and probably had too much time on his hands. And so this pastor decided that he would actually paraphrase the story. And he paraphrased it, in which case he pretty much told the story with almost every word starting with the letter F. It is called the prodigal son in the key of F. If you know, there's a key signature in music. Musicians understand that. But it is called the prodigal son in the key of F. So I need to put my reader glasses on because this is a small print. But I will share with you the prodigal son in the key of F. Listen carefully. Feeling footloose and frisky, a feather-brained fellow forced his fond father to folk over the farthings. He flew far to foreign fields and frittered his fortune, feasting fabulously with faithless friends. Finally facing famine and fleeced by his fellows in folly, he found himself a feed flinger in a filthy farmyard. Fairly famishing, he fain would have filled his frame with forage food from the fodder fragments. Fooey! My father's flunkies fare far, fancier, fragile fugitive, fumed feverishly, frankly facing facts. Frustrated by failure and filled with foreboding, he fled forthwith to his family. Falling at his father's feet, he floundered forlornly. Father, I have flunked and fruitlessly forfeited family favor. But the faithful father, forestalling further flinching, frantically flagged the flunkies to fetch forth the finest battling and fix a feast. The fugitive's fault-finding freighter frowned on the fickler, uh, fickle forgiveness of former Folderol. His fury flashed, but fussing was futile. The far-sighted father figured such filial fidelity is fine, but what forbids fervent festivity? For the fugitive is found. Unfurl the flags with fanfare's flame, flaring, let fun and frolic freely flow. Former failures forgotten, folly forsaken. Forgiveness forms the foundation for future fortitude. 
Oh. Now, by the way, I dare you to try and read that fast. That is a tongue twister. But that is a version of the story that we are looking at here tonight. Um, stories told about a Sunday school teacher. You know, you have to love, by the way, what kids come up with in Sunday school class. Kids are so sincere and they are so honest. The first thing on their minds will come out of their mouth. And so the Sunday school teacher was teaching this particular story, the story about the prodigal son. And she was wondering if the students got what she was teaching. And so uh, she said, and rather factly, she said, who can tell me who wasn't happy when the prodigal son came home? To which one young lady gave a right but not the correct answer when she said, the fatted calf. <laughs> Now that's right, the fatted calf probably wasn't very happy, but there was another one in the story, and it is the elder brother. Now again, when you think about this story, one of the things I told you this morning is that I love to study and I love to figure some things out. If you'll study the chapter, Luke chapter 15 is actually a tale of three stories. It's not just simply one, it's not just simply two, but it's three. And there's something similar, and that is not by accident, that Jesus, when He tells parable stories, that He tells stories in this chapter all related to something lost. It also is noteworthy to find that He progresses and He gives a progression. For instance, in the first story, it's only one sheep out of 100 that is lost. In the second story, it is one coin out of 10 that is missing. But when you get to this third story, it seems like there is an emphasis because now it's one out of two sons. And so there's a natural progression that is obvious. And we find in addition in these stories that there are some similarities. For instance, you find there's great rejoicing. And the emphasis is on the end about rejoicing and being excited about one lost thing being found. But when you get to the third and final story, you find that that expectation is half missing. Because there is rejoicing on the part of the father. There is rejoicing on the part of the household. But there's one person who's not happy. And that is the focus here tonight. We find that here in this story we have many different emphasis. Usually when we tell the story, we tell the story with emphasis on the father. And that is also rightly so. After all, the Father represents God. And God the Father is a loving Father. He is quick to forgive. He is quick to show mercy. He, he wants, the Bible even says, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We find this Father that He, uh, he waits patiently for the Son to come home. And when the Son comes home, rather than uh, chastise Him, rather than you know, tell Him all of His faults, the Father quickly forgives. Repentance is met with mercy. And so we find that the emphasis seems to be on the Father. But the emphasis also seems to be on the part of the prodigal son. The prodigal son is the one, after all, that is seemingly the main character taught by many preachers and many sermons today. That prodigal son, certainly he wasted everything. He certainly came back to his father. Now, I also, by the way, I have no problem with preaching this as a salvation message. But I don't happen to believe that that is the emphasis of what Jesus was saying. Because after, actually, if you understand 
what Jesus was doing, who was he addressing, why was he teaching, why was he using these stories, you actually don't have to wonder because Jesus, the Bible actually tells us what his purpose was. If you look at chapter 15 and beginning in verse number 1, prefacing all of the stories we read, then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And here it is. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. But we are told here that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, uh, those that had the phylacteries and those that sort of led them oftentimes in worship, those that nitpicked at the law, that they were outside of where Jesus was fellowshipping, eating, trying to reach lost sinners. And the Bible says that they were murmuring. They were complaining. Now you have to also understand something, that it is actually a Jewish... Uh, I mentioned this morning, just simply talking about you know, what does it mean to uh, understand context. One of the things to understand context is to understand uh, how they taught and how they understood. It is actually a Jewish practice to teach in forms of three. And many times they will actually progress. And it's actually also a very pointed way that Jews, they sort of pose questions. And it is a way of engaging the listener. And so Jesus is even trying to pose a question with an obvious answer. But you find that the third and final story is the pointed message when he actually points out this elder brother. It's actually the point of all three of the lost stories. Now I want you to understand, I believe, next, that the third story and the ending with the elder brother are what we would call the punchline. It is the emphasis of why Jesus told the story to begin with. You see, here is Jesus, and he is doing what he came to do, to seek and to save that which was lost. Here he is, and he's now having a meal, sharing a meal with them. Uh, he's not compromising. He's not sinning. Uh, he is simply doing the work that his father sent him to do, which was to come and reach lost souls. And so here's Jesus. You know, we find that those Pharisees, that they have a bad attitude. The question that I ask myself tonight is, have I ever had such a bad attitude? Have I ever resembled the elder brother? Have I ever taken upon myself the characteristics that are born in the story that literally Jesus now makes the point of his lesson? Let's notice some things in this story. This story opens up a window into what I will call, by the way, the other prodigal. You know the word next, by the way. The word prodigal means waste. Now, there's actually, if you want to be truthful about it, both sons waste. One wastes in a foreign land, the other one stays home and wastes everything about his father. You know, you don't have to leave home to sin. You don't have to leave home in order to have a bad attitude. And this other brother, he has, uh, he has a pity party. He feels sorry for himself. And he exhibits several things that are wrong. What are the characteristics of the elder brother? Let's notice them first. Next, the older brother was filled with a spirit of envy and jealousy. Now this is clearly shown in verses 25 through 27. Notice, now his elder brother, elder son was in the field. 
And as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. Now this should have been good news. He should have been thrilled. He should have rejoiced. But instead, he responded with envy and jealousy. Now how does this work? Now, how does jealousy work? How does envy work? Verse number 28 tells us, And he was angry. You know, anytime, by the way, that you exhibit anger, it is not of God, unless it is anger at unholiness. Mm -hmm. That's not the case here. It says, and he was angry and would not go in. What a cruel thing jealousy is. Proverbs 27, verse 4 says, wrath is cruel. And anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? Envy. Uh, the truth of that question, that rhetorical question, is nobody. When somebody's angry, when somebody's jealous, when somebody's envious, then they can't have anybody in their presence because it just simply drives people away. By the way, again, that is not a good characteristic for a church to ever possess, whether it be one person or the entire church. A church that is exhibiting jealousies and envies about other churches or other you know, people or you know, trying to you know, promote self, that kind of a church is going to split and that kind of a church is going to die. Therefore, we have to make a choice, a choice not to have any kind of an envious spirit. Now, to illustrate, I, I want to pose something that has actually philosophically been posed as a choice to people across the world. I'm going to pose it in terms of choose which house, if you could, that you would purchase and where. People have been given this choice. If you are given a house free and clear, and I, can, I understand that is not something that probably will happen, but would you choose, and let's have the first one next, a $400,000 house on a street where all the other houses are valued at $100,000. Now, by the way, can you do the math? In other words, would you prefer to live in a house that is worth four times the value of any other home on the block? Or, let's try this one here. A $1 million house on a street where all the other houses are $2 million. Now, do you get the choice? One where you want to live in a $400,000 house, in which case all the other homes are worth $100,000, or a $1 million house on the street where every other house is worth double that. Do you know what the majority of people choose? Can you go back one slide? This is that one there, letter A. The majority of people, when asked this question, if you were given a choice, would you rather live in the $400,000 home when all of the other homes are worth $100,004 to one, rather than living in a $1 million home where all of the other homes are worth $2 million? People would rather choose to live in less of a house as long as it is better than anybody else around them. You know what that is? That's envy. That's jealousy. There's a theory that psychologists have described as the focusing illusion. It is a theory that suggests that when we compare our lives with others, we focus on small, insignificant, and meaningless details. And the truth of the matter is that our world is bent this way. We are comparing, and in comparison, we lose. Because truly, the only thing we ought to compare ourselves with 
is simply God and His will for us. Amen. Can I point out something in this story? In this parable, a man had two sons. The younger one wanted his inheritance, took it and ran off and wasted it. The elder son, now you have to understand again, this is something about context. You have to understand this is a Jew. This is in the Jewish mindset, the Jewish culture. The elder son got what was called a double portion. What does that mean? Whenever you had a situation where there are two sons, they divided the pie into thirds. The inheritance was split into thirds, and it was then divided this way. The older son got two shares. The younger got one. The older, by virtue of his being the eldest, received a double portion. That double portion, it stayed intact throughout their life. They received a double portion. Now, here's the younger son, and he's wasted his one-third of the pie. But here's the elder son, and the father even points this out. He says, listen, all that I have is thine. Now, all he had was two-thirds. All he had left, he had given one-third of the inheritance away. But all that he had left, two-thirds, was this, this boy, that not only would he have been twice as wealthy as his younger brother, but he still had all of his inheritance. And yet he was not happy. Can I tell you one of the things that I've tried to make a policy entire, my entire life's ministry has been built upon this, and that is to not get the green-eyed monster. When I came to the church that I currently pastor, I came and I agreed to come and serve as the youth pastor. The pastor who brought me there never told me what my salary was, and I never asked. Now, some might say, well, that's dumb. You ought to ask. And, and I have no problem anybody asking, but it didn't matter. God called me there, and God has taken care of my wife and I all of these years. I shared the story, I know with a, a class that I taught this last week, I shared the story with them uh, of when, when before Valerie and I came, we, we, literally, uh, the summer before we came to Rosemont, that summer of 1987, Valerie was expecting our firstborn child. And while she was expecting, when she got pregnant, we were excited, firstborn, all excited about that. But at the time of her becoming pregnant, we had no health insurance. Meaning that we literally planned on having to somehow save up, pay for you know, a hospital bill without insurance. We, we just decided we're going to have to do the best we can. And so we tried it, and we didn't have a whole lot of income you know, at the time. And I can remember we were struggling, and we just determined we're probably going to have to start out in debt when we moved to Rosemont and I become a youth pastor in the ministry of First Baptist Church. Well, as it turned out, that summer, we just simply turned it over to the Lord. We prayed, did the best we could. But that summer, I was working a part-time job for a delivery company you would know as UPS, United Parcel Service. And at UPS, I was working for them about four hours a night. And I can remember, as I worked that part-time job, and they had health insurance for me, but I wasn't the one praying. <laughs> I was going to go into the labor and delivery room. But as it turned out, that summer, they renegotiated the contract with the workers, and they actually voted to change the contract 
to include the spouse of the employee so that suddenly I was met with this fact. And the interesting detail is this, that the entire contract, the old contract ended on July the 31st, 1987. The new contract went into effect August the 1st, 1987. Do you want to take a guess what day our son was born? Our son was born on August 1st, 1987. Had he been born one day earlier, they wouldn't have covered it. Not, not only that, but UPS at the time, I don't know today, but they had the very best health insurance. It literally paid 100% of everything. Wow. It, it paid for the doctor bill. It paid for the hospital bill. Uh, it paid for all of the medication, anything that she needed. It paid for all of that. Uh, and, and, and so when we left, then a couple of weeks later to come to Rosemont to be on staff, we came debt-free. In fact, we not only came debt-free, but in addition, part of the contract also said that anybody that is in the employ of UPS on September 1st is going to receive a $500 bonus. I worked through September 1st. I left at midnight that night. We drove. Uh, September 2nd was my first day on the job at Rosemont. And so we not only had our debts paid, but we came with $500 to the black. Now, why am I saying that? I'm saying it, it just simply pays to trust God. Amen. It just simply pays to put your eyes on the Lord. This thing about envy and jealousy, I can tell you it can ruin ministries. It, it can ruin relationships with families. One of the things my father um, passed away, and I thought about him this morning, but my father passed away 10 months ago, December the 17th of last year. And I can remember, uh, my mother passed away a couple of years before, but I can remember when my father passed away, I have two sisters, and one of the things that we have made mention of, we made mention of it many times, but we made mention that we will not be fighting over anything. Mm -hmm. You know, I can tell you as a pastor, I sometimes have to deal with that. And I can tell you sometimes families have split after the parents have gone. And it's a shame that here the parents would be disgraced and ashamed to know that their children were children who were fighting over really what results in more or less trinkets and you know stuff and, and even money is is temporal but I, I will tell you that it's important that uh, we not become an elder brother sometimes by the way it's not money sometimes it's the time and sometimes it's the attention but you know again when your focus is on the Lord these things are put into perspective Keep your eyes upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. Trust in Him. Make sure your focus is on Him. Not only do we see the elder brother had a problem there with envy and jealousy, but second, the elder brother found service a drudgery instead of joy. <coughs> we see this in verses 28 and 29. It says that he was angry. And would not go in, therefore came his father out and entreated him, tried to reason with him. And he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. Now you have to give this guy credit. He certainly was a good worker. I don't think he was making that up. But the verse where he describes what he did for his father, the actual tenor of his voice gives way to, if you don't mind me paraphrasing it, he says, listen, all of these years, 
I have been slaving away for you. There's a difference, by the way, between joyful service and slaving drudgery. Feeling like you are slaving. Listen, you know, I can tell you one of the things that will make or break a church is how you view serving the Lord. Is it a chore or is it a privilege? That you teach a class, is that a chore? Oh, I've got to teach that class. You're, you're in trouble. You have to sing a special. Oh, I've got to sing a special. Rather than I get to. Well, one of the things I've tried to keep fresh, and, and, and I would challenge you in this. I've been, you know, pastor now for 21 years, ministry 36 years. But I've actually been doing stuff a lot longer than that. And after a long time, eventually here, you can get tired. And sometimes, by the way, you can be needing people to praise you. I've tried to stay away from that. Now, I tell Valerie many, many times, it doesn't matter whether the people are happy or sad. It doesn't matter whether they come up and say great sermon or awful sermon. Sometimes, by the way, believe it or not, I have sometimes very honest people. They'll say, Pastor, I didn't understand a thing you said. <laughs> <laughs> or, or I've had some, Pastor, what you just said, I disagree with. And, and, and those are interesting conversations. But the point I'm trying to make is this. Who are you serving? Why are you serving? Are you serving? Or is it just simply your slaving job that you are stuck doing? You know, the same is true in the home. Happy home is happy servants. Miserable home is miserable servants, slaves. There ought to be joy in life. It's ironic, a repentant younger son came back wanting to be a servant to his father. The elder brother who was serving his father was actually exhibiting the exhibitions of a slave. I'm in bondage. I'm stuck. I'm stuck at home. I, I, I never got to have a party. I never, you know, he, he, he literally loses sight of what it's all about. I love, by the way, what the Apostle Paul says. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ constraineth us. What does that mean? The love of Christ motivates us. Do you know why Christ did what He did? He did what He did because He loved you. He did what He did because He loved me. Therefore, we need to understand... And, and by the way, it's interesting that in Philippians 2, Paul says this, and I want to read these verses, verse number 13 and 14. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And then connected to that, he says one of the first verses we had our son as a little child memorized was Philippians 2.14 which says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Our son at the time was now a pastor um, you know, in his 30s. Uh, he used to say, Do all things without murmurings and deputings. He, he couldn't quite say the disputings. But regardless, what do you, who are you serving and why? Why do we serve? You know, if you are murmuring, if you are disputing, then you are not serving Christ with a pure heart. Notice he said these many years. Do you count how much you served, how long you served these many years? Now, I'm surprised, by the way, he didn't put a number on it. I've served 15 years, you know, 14 you know, days, two months. I, I've served all of... I'm surprised he didn't have it on a calendar. 
You know, the truth of the matter is, you need to serve and just forget. Don't chalk it up that you deserve anything. Don't chalk it up that you have anything that is coming to you. Not only that, but number three, the elder brother was dominated by himself. This is an obvious point. We see in verse number 28, and he was angry. Again, one of the things that, that selfishness does is selfishness comes out with anger. And we find that the selfishness of the brother was selfish in four different ways. First of all, he was self-righteous. Verse number 29, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. What is he doing? He's comparing. He's saying, I never did the awful things that my younger brother did. Did you do any awful things? You know, maybe you didn't do those things, but there's other sins. I, I would tell you, by the way, that I, I think we ought to be more concerned sometimes with the, can, can I even say more acceptable sins in church? Well, I don't murder, and I'm not out drinking, and I'm not on drugs. But oh, do you gossip? Do you slander? Do you criticize? Do you, do you sort of show anger in subtle ways? Do you demand? And, and are you sort of like the prickly, uh, you know, a porcupus, a porcupine, and, and and sort of the uh, prickly bush that just simply every time somebody I remember I had a uh, had a bus kid years ago. I know you got a bus route. Uh, but I had a bus kid back 40 years ago, and I can remember this boy, Anthony. And Anthony was, I mean, he was a fight a minute. But anytime anybody accidentally brushed up against him, he, his fist came up and he started punching. I can remember one time, I, I, and, and I had, didn't have enough workers on this. It was a big bus. And back in those days, you did stupid things like, you know, you'd have like, you know, 80, 90 kids and just two workers. <laughs> Inner city, Minneapolis. And I remember um, having one day, all of a sudden, Anthony's fighting, and I look back, and who is it? It's one of my bus workers. Accidentally <laughs> bumped into him. I'm sorry, Anthony. I mean, he's a punching. You know, some people are like that, that they fight at the drop of the hat. When God is not the focus, when God is not the center, then that becomes idolatrous. It's very easy, and you find in our society today with... A lot of people emphasizing me, meism, that there's a lot of elder brothers around. We, we notice as well that he was self-centered. Notice that we have the personal pronouns, I, me, and mine. Everything was about him. You know what it ought to be? The Bible says that our chief end, our chief purpose ought to be to do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10 teaches us. Third, he was full of self-pity, acting just like a baby. We read again in verse number 29. And he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. Do you almost hear sort of like the baby and him coming out? Wow, wow, wow. You know, babies will do that. They'll cry. But you know what? Grown people shouldn't cry like babies. Here we find that he was full of self-pity saying, don't you feel sorry for me? I never had such a party. Fourth, he was self-satisfied. Verse number 29, it appears he was satisfied with his efforts. Can, can I tell you that we should never be satisfied that we have done enough, especially for Christ, when Christ is our aim, when Christ is our end? Um, I can remember 
I can remember um, many, many years ago, um, I, had a, I had an evangelist that came, and, and he, uh, I was a youth pastor at the time, and I can remember he came, and, and he encouraged my heart all week long. It was a youth retreat. Uh, we took the teenagers up to northern Minnesota. There was a camp. Uh, we, we tented. Uh, we did some outdoor activities. We went whitewater rafting. We went canoeing. We went and rode bikes around Duluth. And it was a wonderful, wonderful time. But I can remember this evangelist made quite an impression on me when every single time he came up, and, and after he would preach, he would say, Pass clear is that help was that helpful? I, I just am wanting to know. And then he would say, This pastor, is there anything I can do? He exhibited a servant mindset. And that is one of the reasons why that evangelist is one evangelist. I've actually scheduled it every three, four years. I have him come and preach for me because I like to have evangelists that are serving God and serving others. I'm simply saying we should never be satisfied. We should always seek to do more and we should you know, work even after uh, we have worked and served. Notice one final point, and that is this. The elder brother showed no concern for the lost. How tragic verse number 30 is when it says, But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. How tragic. And yet there are Christians sometimes who speak just this way. They, they are more concerned with the offense rather than a lost soul coming back home. Notice, but as soon as this thy son was come. It's interesting if you actually look, you will find that this elder brother is obviously has a problem because what does he call his brother? He never uses the word brother. In addition, he never calls his father father. Terms of endearment have left his vocabulary. He calls his brother thy son. He refers to his father as him. What happened? This boy had gotten hardened with a bad attitude in his heart. And I will tell you that it is sad, but I've seen this time and time again, where people that once had the joy of the Lord, they had gotten saved. They were excited. They could hardly wait to come to church. They always you know, came early and they always stayed late and they shook hands and they fellowshiped and they were always willing to do more and more. All of a sudden, something changed. What changed was they became the elder brother. You say, preacher, what can I do? What is the remedy for the elder brother syndrome? There are three things the father said to the elder son. Three things. He said, first of all, think of your privilege. He said, son. He said, don't forget who you are. Don't forget, and, and I would just encourage you here tonight, that one of the antidotes to the elder brother cinder is don't forget if you're saved, you're a son, you're a child of God. But as many as received him to them, gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in him. Thank God we can't lose our salvation. Once you're saved, once you're a child of God, always a child. He said, don't forget who you are. He said, secondly, think of your position. In verse number 31, he says, Thou art ever with me. One of the things we need to remember in our Christian life every single day is the presence of God. Do you realize that is the most quoted promise? God promised more than any other promise in the Bible that He would be with us. When He gave the Great Commission, He, he said, And lo, I am with you always. Uh, you, we need to realize that the 
promise of God will never fail us. Think of your position. And then finally, he says, think of your possessions. He says, all that I have is thine. All that I have. By the way, when you think about God in place of this father in this story, all that God has is still at our disposal. We are never without resource. We are never without remedy. We are never without any kind of a solution. And you and I would be wise to remind yourself of that. This elder brother, four characteristics again, filled with envy and jealousy. He found service a drudgery rather than a joy. He was dominated by self in four different ways, and then he showed no concern for the lost. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. The elder brother sit here. I trust that this was a help to you and a reminder. It may be that tonight, before we pray, that God may have spoken to your heart. Maybe God may have, I don't know, maybe even brought conviction. You know, if I, I would tell you that one of the desires I have is every time I hear preaching to seek to be convicted if I need it. Preachers need that. People need that. Everybody does. Maybe God convicted you and said, you know, in a little way, that's sort of like you. You're filled with self. You've been envious, jealous. You've been angry, frustrated, you know, exhibiting a lot of these things. Then I would encourage you to even repent of that and just even see God's forgiveness and God's help. Maybe tonight, maybe that's not been you. But you know, can I tell you that it sneaks up suddenly? That all of a sudden you can develop these attitudes. And again, attitudes that will ruin you and your family will ruin a church family. Let's try and have a sweet, sweet spirit. Let's not ever develop.